You are entering the Freedom Hut. America needs its freedom. Time to reopen. Plus, YouTube is censoring those doctors from California who broke with the consensus over the lockdown. From a right to be believed to a right to be heard, Democrats changing the rules over the allegations against Joe Biden. Plus, should businesses be liable for COVID risks to employees? Are we heading for a meat shortage and Pence mask gate? That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. You're a great American again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. As our nation battles against this terrible scourge, we continue to pray for the victims as well as for those Americans who are grieving their lost ones and their loved ones. There's never been anything like this. We suffer with one heart, but we will prevail. We're coming back, and we're coming back strong. We built the greatest economy anywhere in the world two months ago, and we're going to build it again. We're going to build it fast. It's going to go very quickly. And, Larry, thank you for being here very much. Uh, it's uh, You see what's going to happen. I think you have the same feeling as I do. It's going to come back very fast. I certainly hope the president's right. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Thank you so much for joining Oh, man, it is it is time. It is time for us to finally say it. We need to reopen this country and this needs to be happening faster than it currently is. I know that there's all this guidance. I know that there is a is a desire to make this go slowly and safely. And the time is now different paces for different places. New York should be a little bit slower, should be quite a bit slower than some states and, uh, and somewhat slower than others. But we can't continue doing this. This has been a bit uh, absurd now for a while, in my opinion. There are states where you have, like Texas has 30 million people, about 29 million people, and 600 deaths. The state's been shut down for going on two months now. What are we doing? What the heck is this? Now, I know Texas is starting to open up, and other states are beginning this process Uh, You have a partial reopening already in Montana, Minnesota, Colorado, Oklahoma, Colorado, 93.7 FM, Denver, what's up? Uh, But Colorado opening up uh, partially, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Georgia, which got a lot of attention from the media trying to scare Georgia's Governor Kemp away from a reopening, South Carolina, Mississippi, they're all opening up or have already begun that process. A lot of states, uh, a lot of other states have orders expiring tomorrow, April 30th. Uh, for, with that, you've got Idaho, Nevada, Arizona, Texas, Alabama, Florida. And they are in the process then of also opening. But then you get into if, what are, oh, and, and Maine also, by the way, will be opening up. And then you get into a whole bunch of other states that are shut down or restricted with no immediate end in sight. All of the Northeast, uh, all the really what we consider the East Coast before you get down to South Carolina. So from North Carolina all the way up to New Hampshire, locked down. Our entire West Coast, California, Oregon, Washington, locked down. The Dakotas, Nebraska, Kansas, Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, the Midwest, the industrial Midwest, Ohio, Michigan, locked down. 
How long are they going to continue to do this? Nobody really knows at this point because they're also putting in place rules and regulations that are going to make it very difficult for them to have real progress without setbacks. And this is what I think everyone needs to know beforehand. This, this needs to be established early in this process. If we start opening states and then go back to full-on lockdown in those states, it's going to be disastrous. How do you prepare an economy for that? How do you prepare people psychologically for that? No, we've, we've done the lockdown thing. We, we get it. We know the mitigation measures. We understand that there's not a, a, a cure for this disease and that the treatments for it are substandard right now. They're not sufficient. They're not good enough. Although I, I did see, and we'll talk about the good data today for remdesivir from Gilead, uh, Gilead Pharmaceuticals. Hopefully, all, all we have to do is, is have something that would make the mortality rate for those who are hospitalized, which is a small percentage of people who overall even get the disease. If we bring that mortality rate for the hospitalized down by 50, 60, 70 percent, then this becomes an entirely manageable health problem. Right now, it's more of a challenge and much more of a, of a threat because of the mortality of those who are over 70 going to the hospital. Imagine if we can get to the place where you're over 75, you're in the hospital with COVID and they have something that means, you know, you got a nine out of 10 shot of making it out of that hospital. It would be a game changer, right? I don't, I don't want to get our hopes up because who knows how far away this will be. But some good data from Gilead Pharmaceuticals on remdesivir. Uh, Colchicine is also going to have some data coming out soon. This is I've been hearing about this from doctor friends in New York for a few weeks now. Uh, there's a big study out of Montreal, and they're hoping that colchicine will prevent a uh, will pre prevent the inflammatory response in the lungs. That's what ends up killing people. ARDS, uh, which is part of the or which comes during the cyto or is tied in with the cytokine storm. Gosh, reading about all this health stuff, I got to tell you, who, who would have thought? It's it's like we're all living in one long WebMD article these days, but. We got to open the states. We have to do this. It needs to it needs to be a mentality that we share. The data is not supportive of the lockdowns anymore. If you really look at it, it's not supportive of the lockdowns. There are mitigation measures that should be kept in place. There are certain things that we're going to have to be doing for a while. But the overall lockdown approach is just not what we should be doing. And that's why uh, I understand states are reopening and we're moving. That but I'm saying we need to move this faster. This needs to go faster than it has so far. People need to go. We keep saying go back to work. We need to get back to living our lives. We need to get back to having the basic freedom in our day to day of where we're going to go and who we're going to see. That's a part of life, too. You know, we're all in, in what is effectively this this true mass mass incarceration. You often hear liberals talk about mass incarceration as a political issue. But we have been in a mass incarceration. Yeah, sure. You can go out for essentials. But, you know, if you're under house arrest under some circumstances, I mean, official criminal house arrest, you can still go to the hospital. You still have some you can go to doctor's appointments There are things they let you do. So, yeah, OK, we can maybe go out for a walk if you wear a mask. It's it's gotten uh, it's gotten to the point where we just have to say enough is enough. And, and we're there. I think you've all been there for a while. I'm here in New York. I've been building to this point. But none of this like, oh, maybe this is going to drag on for 18 months. Maybe we're going to have to lock down again in a month or we're going to lock down again in September. No, that's wrong. We shouldn't do that. 
The data doesn't support it. It's not saving lives the way they claimed it would when you line it up against places that did not do lockdowns. This is looking increasingly like a, an overreaction, a panic move that the administration and states were pushed into uh, for a combination of the, the media frenzy around this issue after being completely wrong and downplaying it. When, it when, when the media's panic would have been perhaps helpful, they were telling us it was no big deal, that this wasn't going to hit us that hard. And then when we all realized that it was going to actually hit this country very hard and cause a lot, of ma- a lot of mass death and casualties, then the media's response was locked down for as long as it takes everywhere. And if you're opposed to that, you're a bad person. You want to sacrifice old people to die. That's what they say. It's nonsense. It's, it's just wrong. But this is now a major a major fight we have on our hands because there are places that want to do whatever they can to drag this out as long as they can. And the politicians who are in charge, you must remember this, politicians will always disappoint you. They're not as good as they pretend to be and they're not as good as a lot of people want to believe they are. Government is inept by its nature. That's why our founders wanted a very limited and clearly delineated series of authorities and powers for the government. That's why the focus wasn't on how do we have super geniuses in charge that can make all of our decisions for us. That's socialism, that's statism. No, the focus was here are the things you're allowed to do and here are the rights that individuals have that the state cannot trespass upon. Oh, there's been a lot of trespassing on those rights, though, hasn't there? There's been a lot of that going on and not nearly enough pushback on it. Elon Musk, who, whether you love Tesla or not, is certainly a a dynamic and brilliant fellow. He tweeted out uh, earlier, well, it was, I guess, late last night, uh, free America now in all caps. I, I share the sentiment. It's time to free up this country. We can figure this out as we go along. We can take necessary steps to protect people in high risk groups and in high risk areas without shutting down the whole country. This was a mistake The -the across-the-board lockdown was the wrong decision. I understand why Trump felt tremendous pressure. I understand why different states and governors even felt a pressure to do this lockdown. Some states, maybe, and really it's just New York, New Jersey, Michigan. Some states you could have justified this for two to four weeks. But we've gone gone past it. it. It has reached its expiration date. And all of this focus on, oh, we need the testing and the testing will be in place. And without that, no, we have to start living life again. We have to accept this. I'm going to be somebody who's out in the red zone in New York City. I will be. I'm already going to stores and outside interacting with people. But I'm somebody who's going to be living in the highest risk part of the country. But I'm a relatively low risk by age individual. And I'm willing to take the risk. And I know that that means there's going to have to be some other procedures in place for those of us who do have people in our lives who are at higher risk. And I understand that this might mean that some people have to continue on a regimen of uh, extraordinary caution for the weeks and months ahead. But we are more likely to have an economy that can beat the virus. We're more likely to be able to sustain frontline medical personnel, pay them, keep them in status at the hospital where they're actually doing things to help people and help people who don't have COVID-19, by the way, if those of us who are at lower risk are productive and engaged, you know, we have to remember at some point, what exactly are we fighting for? I'm not fighting for the, I'm not fighting for a future 
of being safe at home and, and having a, a fridge full of food. And we'll talk about the possible meat shortage later. No, we want we want the liberty to pick what our future will be. And that means the right to make individual decisions that entail some degree of risk. There's been a fundamental shift away from this that's happened in our society where you have this this panicism or safetyism, as Heather McDonald uh, called it in her article this week. And we do not live lives of safetyism. We live lives of balanced and assessed risk of all different kinds and in many different ways. Free America now, Elon says. I'm with him. It's time. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Now, I can understand that there's a tendency to think others, especially those who are in charge, especially those who do not share a, a similar philosophical foundation about government, the state, individual rights as you and I do. You would think that they are also seeing the situation with clear eyes. Full hearts can't lose. Now that they're seeing this in a way that that all of us can start from a, a premise that we hold some things in common about what's going on and what should be done in this country. Unfortunately, we are now in for quite a struggle because there are a number of different factors coming together. There is a mass panic, a mass hysteria over this where it's very hard to penetrate this with facts and data. There is a enormous political motive, which we're not supposed to talk about. And the political motive, of course, is to make sure that the economy, the economy can suffer and suffer and suffer, which is going to hurt Trump's reelection chances. We all know that. And the people that are pushing for a more suffering economy are going to say we were saving lives. So they get to feel self-righteous about it, too. And, and then you have the state's People forgot this, but states, once they have a taste of certain powers, the people in charge think that they should continue to wield those powers. They do not want to give them back. They do not say, yeah, that was fun, but or that was necessary, but we're going to move on to something else. And that's what we're facing now. We're facing that recognition and realization. And also that there are private sector businesses that are willing to go along with efforts to suppress dissent to shut down the discussion that all of us should be having about what's an intelligent response given where we are right now. I mean, there's the focus on what has happened, and we do some of that here, but I'm most concerned on how quickly can we get things back up and running. Remember, the economic damage here is time delayed. We're not going to really understand how many businesses are not going to reopen, how much the debt that we're accruing is going to drag on our economy and future growth and and also the the changes in daily life and the way that they're going to affect even once we start to reopen how they're going to affect different industries and businesses that are out there and what that means for people there's going to be a a, a enormous shift uh, of workers of wealth of time allocation of careers and that can be a painful process in the end, maybe you get to a better place through that kind of economic evolution. But in the short term, it means a lot of people without a check. It means a lot of people who are going to be going through a painful time. And we're just starting to really get a sense of how broad that is and what that's really going to look like for months, if not perhaps a year or two ahead of us. You know, if this were so easy, if it were possible to just have the government write checks to keep an economy going, 
why shouldn't we just give ourselves a, an eight-week paid vacation every year, courtesy of Uncle Sam? There's, there would be no good reason unless there were negative consequences to that for all of us. And we understand that there are negative consequences, but no one has been focused on that. No, we've been told, stay home, you'll get money, you'll get paid, and we'll send you cash. Just make sure you got plenty of you know, mac and cheese and soda in the fridge and whatever else, and everything's going to be fine. People want to go back to work. People are tired of this. And the data does not support this continued across-the-board shutdown. I have to keep repeating that just because we have to get this through into people's heads. Yes, this disease is dangerous, particularly dangerous to a certain percentage of the population. Yes, it has been a horrible death toll so far. We were not prepared for this. And it's a stunning, it's a stunning failure of government to have been able to handle this better. Fine. All true. But now, now I want to see more and more states adopting the policies of individual freedom and economic choice that we should all have as part of our our day-to-day lives i mean new york they're talking about this might you know we got a 12-step program and we got to have this amount of tracing for this amount of individuals they're never going to be able to test and trace give me a break they're never going to be able to do this they've never been able to do this for a disease at this scale and this speed of spread and and we think that now we're going to figure this out and you're going to i mean new york is doing this we're going to pin our hopes for returning to some degree of of not just normalcy, some some degree of of a life that we get up and look forward to with things to do, with the ability to go out there and make a difference and make choices. We're going to pin that on government setting up a test and trace program that is well beyond not just their capabilities now, but no, no one really thinks they're going to be able to do this. Think of the resources involved and for what? So that we have a better idea of where there are infections in the country than we would based on people who currently know that they're infected based on the symptoms and then go and get a test. We're going to try to track all asymptomatic carriers. I, mean, I, I keep I keep hearing that that's the plan. And then I look around and I say that can't really be the plan, is it? But no, it is for them. It is. And it's very political, too, because if you go against test and trace, if you go too fast, guess what? It's all Trump's fault. That's what they're going to say, because the federal government should be doing it. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a time when it's particularly important that we have open and free dialogue, debate, discussion about what's happening in the country because it affects all of us. Nobody is immune from this. No one is unaffected by it. It is something that we are all very much dragged into in the middle of and has a really negative impact on us. The shutdown across the nation, the shutdown of our states, of our businesses, of, of the economy. Uh, this has this has affected everyone that I know. This has affected me and my business, too. This is not a good time, a fun time to be in particularly media that doesn't have, you know, a legacy corporate uh, entity that owns it. Right. I mean, you know, we're, I'm not doing a radio show for. Uh, a, a company that is you know, owned by Disney or, you know, it's, it's not one of these massive conglomerates uh, along the lines of what you have at the cable at some of the big cable news networks. So everyone's affected by this. I mean, everyone is being 
uh, just because of ad revenue, the lack of demand and everything. And that's that's just on the economic side, on the psychological side, on the health side. And I might have a chance to talk to you about what we're seeing early stage of this, what we're seeing based on the data in Oregon, uh, mortality data in Oregon and what that is telling us. It's not what you would think right now based on a lot of the narrative around COVID-19. But we should be hearing from experts. And one thing that has been consistent is that we were told for weeks, do your part to help the frontline medical workers stay home, shut up, wear a mask. We don't want to hear it. Do your part. That's what that was really the message. I mean, maybe they were a little more gentle with it than that, but that's more or less what it boiled down to. If you want to help us, if you want to help the medical workers, you absolutely have to not be out and trying to be living other parts of your life. You have to stay home. Okay. Well, now we've got doctors who are coming forward who are saying increasingly, no, I don't want to do that. This doctor at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx, which has been hit very badly. Uh, those of you who are familiar with New York City know, know the Bronx pretty well. Uh, it's an area that has had a really high uh, for hospitalizations, uh, a, a large number of hospitalizations, but also the mortality rate has been high. And minority, the minority community in the Bronx, the Bronx is a very large minority community in general. They've been hit particularly badly by this. And it's just it's been brutal. It's been terrible. A doctor who's a frontline ER doc in Barnabas Hospital is like, look, here's what's really going on. He wrote this in the New York Post over the weekend. He says there's there's some terrible stuff happening here, but it is only really affecting the population that we had thought all along was at highest risk. And we're doing the best we can for that population. But the disease had already spread wide uh, before broadly before uh, we had this lockdown in place. And this doctor who is he's dealing with covid patients all day long, trying to save lives, trying to protect people. And he's saying that to most of the population, the risk is very low and the economic and health impacts, health impacts of the lockdown are disastrous. And with each day get worse and worse and worse there there is no antibody to a bad economy there is no okay we're just going to wait this out for a bad economy right that's not possible so that's where you start to have these doctors who are coming out and they're very brave because they're really speaking against a a medical community consensus and look i'm just going to say it most uh most doctors in certain fields are uh they tend to be democrats Surgeons tend to lean Republican, which I think is very interesting. Uh, there are some fields where you have a higher percentage surgeons, heart surgeons, brain surgeons tend to be Republican. Uh, psychiatrists, mostly libs, huge majority of psychiatrists are liberals. Uh, but there is a, a hashtag science consensus that had settled in. Now, when I say it's a consensus, that's a perception. It's not a reality. It doesn't mean that every doc agrees with this. And certainly the, some of the docs that I've been talking to probably because some of them are social acquaintances of mine as well. But here in New York, we're dealing with COVID. They haven't agreed with the across the board lockdown policy. I mean, some of them were like I've said, they're like two weeks, maybe because we could have shut down for two weeks. And it would have been OK. It would have been painful for businesses, but that we could have bounced back from that. That would have been very manageable. A month, six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks. It's not manageable. It's not uh, not something that's worth the cost. But you have this case. So there are doctors that are coming out and, and they're saying that they're the ones that are seeing the worst of COVID-19 every day. They're the ones that are seeing the Wuhan coronavirus destroying, uh, you know, certain communities here in New York. 
not really doing very much to a lot of states with much less population density, but destroying people here in New York City and destroying families. And, and the loss of life is, is terrible. And they're saying we still have to go on and we still have to go forward with life. We can't continue the lockdown. You're hearing doctors saying this now. That's a big change. That's the big switch. And then you have this situation with doctors from Accelerated Urgent Care out in Bakersfield, California. Doctors Dan Erickson and Artin Masihi. And they just did a, a sit-down, uh, a conference really, with 23 ABC. So credit to 23 ABC for, for putting this together. And, and the, the video went, mega viral millions and millions and millions of views and they and here's here's why the video uh went mega viral in that way because they said things like this cases that we already know about so if we look at california these numbers are from yesterday we have 33,865 covid cases out of a total of 280,900 total tested that's 12 percent of californians were positive for covid so we don't, the initial, as you guys know, the initial models were, were woefully inaccurate. They predicted millions of cases of death, not of, not of prevalence or incidence, but death. That is not materializing. Whoa, hold on a second. You're, you're, you're not allowed to say that. It's true. But Dr. Dr. Uh, whatever his name is here, I forgot for a second. I think it's Dr. Erickson. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, Dr. Erickson, not allowed to say that. Not allowed to point out what we already know to be the case, which is the models were way off. Oh, but he goes further than that. What is materializing in the state of California is 12% positives. Well, if we, we have 39.5 million people. If we just take a basic calculation and extrapolate that out, that equates to about 4.7 million cases throughout the state of California, which means this thing is widespread. That's the good news. We've seen 1,227 deaths in the state of California with a possible uh, incidence or prevalence of 4.7 million. That means you have a 0.03 chance of dying from COVID-19 in the state of California. 0.03 chance of dying from COVID in the state of California. Is that, does that necessitate sheltering in place? Does that necessitate shutting down medical systems? Does that necessitate people being out of work? <clears throat> Does it? Does anybody want to try to answer that? Does anybody have any interest in what these doctors are saying? Well, the answer we know is that, of course, millions of people, millions of people wanted to hear what these doctors had to say. And they're, they're treating, this, this is the data that they have collected and they are frontline medical docs doing everything that they can, everything possible to, to save lives and to help people. And this one doc, Dr. Erickson, is saying, look, you have a very, in the state of California, you have a very, very, very small chance of dying from this. This state of California is on lockdown like it's New York. Why? It shouldn't be. This doesn't make any sense. It's not a good idea. The data doesn't support it. Now, you'd think that this would be very important for people to be able to hear, to see for themselves. You should watch this whole video. It's about uh, about 45, 50 minutes long. He just goes through all the data, tells you what he thinks. You should be in a position 
where you can make your own determinations about what their recommendations are and what they're thinking about all of this. But you know what happened? It got pulled down. YouTube decided that this was a violation of its terms of service. I think I mentioned this on the show yesterday, and I know Tucker Carlson talked about this a bit last night on his show. Why would YouTube pull this down? These are two medical doctors talking about data and talking about what they are seeing, what they're up to, uh, you know, meaning that what, what they're seeing from the actual process of trying to save patients' lives and do everything they can for them, and YouTube pulls it down? How, how could that be? It, it seems so completely bizarre. Um, and here's what YouTube said. Quote, We quickly remove flagged content that violate our community guidelines, including content that explicitly disputes the efficacy of local healthy authority recommended guidance, or health authority, it says healthy, health authority recommended guidance on social distancing that may lead others to act against that guidance. Uh, so now science, which is all about testing and retesting hypotheses and assumptions and data there, there, this is remember the, the global warming consensus. I mean, this is how the left, the libs like to think about these issues. There is a way that you're allowed to talk about it. There's a way you're allowed to think about it. And if you deviate from that, if you even ask questions about it, you're a problem. Do as you're told peasant, not allowed to ask any questions. YouTube is going along with this. How could anyone think that this violates community guidelines? You know what violates community guidelines? State governors acting like petty tyrants telling you that you have to stay inside. Police using sting operations to determine whether or not someone is offering their services as a, as a nail salon uh, person to people behind closed doors to paint their nails and whatever people do at a nail salon. I don't even know. But that, that to me is a violation, isn't it? Arresting somebody in front of his or her children for being in a public playground when there's basically no risk. We're going to start to say this. There's basically no risk from being in public in the open air if you maintain even a, a, a basic, normal human distance from people. You know, usually you don't walk out, go to the park and start nuzzling strangers. So as long as you just maintain some personal boundaries, your risk is effectively zero. That's what the science says. Meanwhile, we got idiots running all over the place telling us you got to be masked in public all the time. No, that doesn't make sense. This is now superstition. This is turned into some kind of uh, you know, public sanctimony competition about who gets to be, you know, who is the most dedicated to fighting against COVID-19 by wearing the mask the most. This is absurd. It's stupid. But we're not allowed to talk about it. We're, we're supposed to... The, the largest video sharing platform in the world, YouTube, is going to shut that down. Now, fortunately, it's up in a whole lot of other places and it's just made the video as so often happens with censorship. It makes the video even more enticing. People want to see it even more. Now they realize that it was at least temporarily forbidden to them. But I sit here and I just can't help but think about how this is playing out and everything that we thought about the status, everything that we've thought about the left we're being reminded of it now. They want power. They like to wield power. They don't care about your individual rights. And there is this, this mentality among the establishment, political and media class, that science is something that you just say 
and it's a slogan and you can bludgeon other people into submission by saying science, you know, even if you're completely ignorant of even the most basic tenets of science. And that's what's happening right now. They have no explanations for why the models were so off. Remember, the models were used to tell us all to, sh to shelter in place, go home, be on lockdown. And that's what this is. This is a shelter in place order from states across the country. The models were the main justification for that. We were not told, look, we might lose 60,000 to 70,000 people over the next six or seven months. But we might also be able to bring that number down a bit if we just do the following things. No, no. We were told, stay home. You're going to lose 100, 250,000 people, even if you do everything we say. So you better do everything we say because it could be much, much worse than that. My friends, they were wrong. And bending the curve has now turned into, or flattening the curve, has now turned into, well, we're going to kind of just keep trying to do this for as long as possible because really what ends up happening is you just spread the spread of the disease out over a longer period of time, which means that you're going toward what is a de facto herd immunity strategy with mitigation to slow the spread, but not to stop it. That's what we're heading for. They won't be honest about it, though. So instead, what they say is, well, we might do. And by, there are some who are claiming that we're really just going to have to do a series of lockdowns, additional lockdowns. It's time to free America. It's time for all of us to be free. People want to stay home. They can stay home. You don't want to open your business. Don't open your business. You think you're at high risk. Take whatever precautions you any American needs to know that, that you, the American people as individuals are responsible for your own health. No one else cares about it as much as you do. You might have loved ones who care a whole heck of a lot, but no one cares about your health as much as you do as an individual, as a person. You need to be empowered to make decisions for it. You need to have the best data, the best information possible, which is hard when you've got suppression efforts from YouTube and others. But it's time to restore the balance of freedom in this country, including the risks that come from allowing people to make their own decisions about their lives. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. In my mind, it's inevitable that we will have a return of the virus, or maybe it never even went away. When it does, how we handle it will determine our fate. It's coming back, he says. Wait, we're flattening the curve, right? We're flattening the curve. Okay, it's been flattened. Now what? Now we either start to try to live life again, or we just hide until and hide and pray for a vaccine or a cure while the economy and our society crumbles around us. Those are the options. Some of us knew this in the beginning and tried to tell everybody. I tried. And I will tell you, even I, once I saw those models, what am I going to do? I'm going to say, OK, don't listen to the authorities. Two million people will die unless we do what they say. I didn't know that the models were going to be as far off as they were. I thought I always bake into my analysis or build into my analysis. I don't know what baking is on my mind. I always build on my analysis the possibility of government ineptitude and stupidity. I didn't think it would be off by so much. But initially I said, look, we got to go back to work. I understand that there are risks. I understand that there could be additional spread of the virus, but we, we've got to go back to work. We, we can't do this. It doesn't make sense. And now everyone's saying, wait a second, maybe, maybe protecting vulnerable populations, taking basic mitigation measures, engaging in some social distancing. I also want to see how much the social distancing really makes a difference versus the natural spread of the virus 
over the the progression of this. Remember, it's been in the country. It has been in the country since January, February, and it was in March when we had this this huge spike in in deaths and and mortality. Um, or sorry, it was in March when we all realized rather that we were going to have that huge spike in deaths and mortality. And then the worst of the virus hit late March, early April. I mean, it, it was spreading very rapidly. It spread. To, it had spread to millions of people in this country already. And then they're telling us, oh, but because of these mitigation measures, I, I'm sure the mitigation measures help. I'm sure the common sense aspects of it do have an impact. How much? How much of it is just don't be around sick people, self-quarantine if you can, and wash your hands a lot? That's what I want to know. I'm, I want to know what the answers are here. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Democrats, they don't want to come back. They don't want to come back. I think they should be back here, but they don't. They're enjoying their vacation. And they shouldn't be. They're this enjoying time. Yeah, I think they are. I think they are. If you look at Nancy Pelosi eating ice cream on late night television, yeah, I think they probably are. They're having a good time. Uh, I think they should be back. I think they should all come back and we should work on this together. President calling out Congress for being MIA during this whole situation. Nancy Pelosi certainly has no sense of urgency to help the American people. We're now seeing that the early warnings about how there'll be a there'll be a lack of incentive for workers who have been uh, furloughed or lost their job, well, lost their jobs, they've been fired if they're furloughed. I don't think they qualify for this, but there is a, a lack of incentive for them to go back to work because they prefer to get the state benefits plus $600 of federal sweetener that was added into it for the Paycheck Protection Program. Now, look, I'm I'm not about to sit here and say that workers who need this money, you know, oh, they're they're a bunch of fat cats now or anything like that. That's crazy. But they did structure this in such a way that Congress did make this uh, Paycheck Protection Program function so that it is it, it, it is just. People acting in their interest saying, I'd rather stay and have no exposure to the virus, stay home, not go back to work and make more money. People are getting paid right now. I mean, workers who are used to making about fifteen dollars an hour when they look at the the full scale of their of their salary now or rather their full take home pay. They're making a thousand dollars a week to not work. Producer Mark, I know a lot of people who if they could do literally nothing and uh, just do whatever they want. And we're going to get a thousand dollars a week. And then they knew that there would be jobs probably waiting for them when that money ran out because everyone's going to be looking for jobs. I think a lot of people would stay home. I I don't think that would be hard to find. Yeah. Why wouldn't they get paid to do nothing as more money than I was making my first few years at the CIA? I wasn't making a thousand dollars a week. So not even not even close, really. Well, I mean, I guess. Whoa, sorry. I just smacked the microphone. I guess it's I was having a little bit of a flashback to being a. uh, a federal federal bureaucrat and it was getting me a little upset. But yeah, no, it's it's this is the the bill is functioning the way that it's supposed to. And guess what? It's functioning in such a way that people don't want to go back and, and do their jobs, which is making the slowdown in the economy even worse. Remember, there's there's the uh, there's all these different components that are not getting any focus right now. The businesses that are going to go bankrupt. Uh, the industries that are going to have a really hard time coming back, even when they're technically allowed to when the lockdowns end, you know, restaurants operating at 25 uh, percent capacity means you're going to have a whole lot fewer restaurants opening, especially in places like New York, which means you know tens of thousands of jobs are dependent on that. 
I mean, the service industry, I think, is about one in 10 jobs in general in this country. And it might even be, I think retail might be one in 10. Service industry is also something like one in 10. Producer Mark, take a look and tell me what the service industry breakdown is and what the uh, um, retail industry is. Because also retail, I think a lot of folks are going to say, okay, well, do I really want to go to a store if I can just have things delivered to my house at this point? Which had already been happening for a long time, but are you going to go to a store if you have to wear a mask? Don't have to wear a mask sitting around with Amazon on your lap or with your laptop open to Amazon. Don't have to don't have to wear a mask for that, at least not yet, not till the crazy libs get a hold of it. Oh man, and that brings me to the Ooh, there's so much more here. That brings me to the latest, which is that Mike Pence was at the Mayo Clinic and was not wearing a mask. And now we have Pence mask gate. <gasps> Mike Pence is terrible. What has he done? Uh, you know, was Pence, was he nuzzling anybody? Was he coughing in anybody's face? You know, the mask thing is, is a precaution. And it's not, <laughs> you know, you would think that they could understand that the vice president when he's making a public appearance. Here you go. Retail. Wow. Producer Mark on the spot here. Retail and service workers make up about 32% of the workforce. So I, mean, I was saying about 10% and about 10%. I was right, but a little low on the low end. It's more like 30%. Retail and service. That's where the jobs are, folks. That's where a lot of the jobs across the country come from. And those businesses, are they, are they ever really coming back? What are we going to do? The Democrats are also going to say, with any bailout for airlines, with any bailout, I mean, the cruise ship industry is getting a bailout. Like, I'm not a cruise ship guy, so I can't say I'm a, but I understand that a lot of people work very hard in it, and, you know, they need to feed their families and everything else. But and I don't know if that's a business model that's going to work. I've thought, you know, I had read enough of these stories about, you know, norovirus outbreaks and these other things. And I think, I don't know if Coxsackie virus was one. Of, but they'd have these, these outbreaks of uh, like a stomach illness, effectively, a stomach, you call it a stomach flu, even though I don't think it's a flu. Um, and they'd have these on these ships and it would just turn into a giant floating Petri dish. And that was before COVID-19. So I'm not a cruise guy. Producer Mark has actually done a cruise. You, you liked it, right? You said it was good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I don't know. You know, I have one scheduled for December. I don't know if I'm going on it right now. See, you're a perfect example of what I mean. Even if they said, oh, no, Mark, it's fine. You're allowed to go on your cruise. You're going to get your money back? You're going to go on that cruise as of right now. This second, I'm getting my money back. Yeah, that's what I figured. Yeah. And I like I, I can't can't argue with that. I mean, I, I would do the same thing if I were if I were in that. I, I had actually put down a deposit to go to a beach um, in December for my birthday and you know, I'm, I'm hoping that I might still be able to go, but who knows? I mean, the world is crazy right now, and everyone's—we're all just being fed such a such an overwhelming diet of fear. But oh no, don't worry—the the Democrats have got all this covered, and that's why they're yelling about Pence and about uh, about how Trump is a conspiracy theorist. Pence isn't wearing a mask. Plain here's fake Republican Nicole Wallace. These people, I just want to note, and, and I just let me say this before I get it. I have always told you, and I'm honest with you about whatever my whatever my rules are for this show. I don't trash friends of mine. And so people that I am friends with and have known for years, even when they have gone to the dark side, even when they have betrayed the team, so to speak, or at least Republican team, I don't mean team buck, 
that's different. You know, someone crosses swords with me publicly, then it's fair game. But if someone decides that they're going to be, you know, an ideological turncoat, uh, I will not trash them if they are my friend on the show. Just so you know that, because some of you always reach out to me. What about so and so? And I'm like, ah, you know, look back into my past. You can generally tell who in the media business I'm pretty cozy with. And and I and, but I'm but see, I'm honest with you about that. The same way that I tell you that I'm not doing neutral reports here, that I have an opinion. I also uh, do not trash. I will not ever lie about any of my friends or, or promote people that I think don't deserve it or anything like that. But I will not attack them unless they attack me. Uh, and which unfortunately does occasionally happen too. But some of these former and Nicole Wallace is not I've never met her, don't know her. And, you know, she seems like a horrible, smug, nasty person who's not really good at anything. There's a lot of that in the Bush administration. You look back, the Bush administration had a lot of really, uh, really in, uh, unimpre- <laughs> unimpressive, unimpressive folks. Um, and, you know, there's so the, the early, early stage Trump administration. Any, anyone want to argue with me about the bad choices made there? Because uh, uh, Michael Cohen called and he wants to charge you. Oh, no, he can't charge you $800 an hour anymore because I think he lost his law license. There's some very bad choices made there, too. Just because someone works for an administration doesn't mean they have anything worthwhile to offer or worthwhile to say. And I think it's important that all of us remember that. Uh, But here is uh, here is Nicole Wallace over at MSNBC just doing what she expects she's supposed to do, which is just feed the MSNBC audience of poorly informed, ideologically uh, brainwashed libs, a steady diet of Trump, Pence hatred. And so she uh, she serves that up with with glee. Play nine. The second most powerful man in the world revealing himself in this video as a coronavirus truther or at least a mask truther. He's also much closer than six feet. I mean, to touch an elbow, you have to touch something. So he's closer than six feet. And I, forget that he's the vice president. This is the kind of human human being that repels me in the grocery store or the Walmart. I mean, I don't want to be that close to anybody while we're still at this phase of the pandemic. So the president and vice president have really revealed themselves as this wacky combination of conspiracy theorists, um, quack medical proponents and truthers. He either doesn't believe that the mask is keeping people safe or he doesn't think that rule applies to him. And the danger here isn't that people like your meal see that and not wear our masks. There's so much wrong and so much stupid there that I don't even really have time to go over it. I would just say a few things. One is the vice president has been tested already numerous times for COVID-19. He is negative. So it's not a lot of us could be walking around. I could be an asymptomatic carrier right now, and I would have no way of knowing percentage wise. And this is all about risk. It's all about percentages. It's all about likelihood. The percentage chance that somebody who in the last couple of weeks has been tested and is negative for COVID-19 now happens to have COVID-19 and is really and, and is asymptomatic is very, very low. You know, that the the vice president would have picked this up after being negative until whatever it was a week or two ago when he had his last test uh, strikes me as as highly implausible. And no one's wearing masks all the time in all circumstances. There's no such thing as perfect security. There's no such thing as perfect protection from the virus. So what the heck is Nicole, the idiot Wallace talking about here? That they're truthers. What does that mean? They don't believe the virus is real. MSNBC, you can make a really fun montage, and it's really, in retrospect, uh, tragic, but you can make a montage of them saying, the virus is fine, it's no big deal, you know, and then when we all found out it was going to be much worse than anticipated, now it's all Trump's fault. 
which is the single most important thing that the media can focus on now. Not stories about therapeutics that maybe are going to save a lot of lives, not getting everyone ready for the the psychological burden of having to accept the risk of being out there and going back to work, being involved in day-to-day life in a way that is not continuous, endless shutdown. Instead of the press rising to this occasion, they've gotten worse, worse than they've ever been. And then you have the Democrats who, no surprise, that they are still disgraceful. I mean, completely disgraceful on this topic, and that's not going to change anytime soon. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. The Washington Post who have reported that the PDB, the president's daily brief, was sounding the alarms over the spread of COVID in China and the lethal danger that it posed to Americans as early as January. Were you aware of that at the time? No, but I'll tell you this uh, as an intelligence person. I've over 25 years experience in the intelligence community. The president's daily briefing is just so very important to decision making and the rest. So what you just heard uh, begs the question, what did the president know? And when did he know it? In addition to which, uh, what did the scientists tell him and when did he tell them? Because actually, as a matter of fact, this president has presided over the worst disaster in our country's history, an assault on the lives and the livelihood of livelihoods of the American people. And he did so by neglect of information, also denial and delay in accepting the facts. That's going to be the pitch for why the American people should vote for unimpressive buffoon Biden and credibly accused of sexual assault buffoon Biden in the fall. That Trump has presided over the worst disaster in the history of this country and it's all his fault and it's his fault because he didn't listen to the experts, even though we have video of the experts, including Dr. Fauci, St. Fauci himself, who was telling us that this was not anything to be concerned about in January and into February. So why would the president have known differently? How, is it, how would it be possible? Unless Fauci was out lying to the American people, which would be a whole separate problem. But this is just the rewriting of history that will occur. They will lie about this. They will scheme. They will omit. And they will have the media doing their bidding all along. And that's the Democrat plan to defeat Trump in the reelection. And they are rooting for failure here with the reopening of the economy. They are. They would like to see real economic pain. There were liberals, you will recall, who were admitting that they wanted a recession before all this happened because it would mean that Trump wouldn't win. In fact, I and I think that she would uh, she would back me up on saying this in the first weeks that I was doing that show rising at the hill dot com. I told my then co-host Crystal Ball several times. I said, look. I, you don't have to agree with me. And I'm just saying she would back up that I said this to her many times. I said the only way Trump doesn't win reelection is if we have a major recession that hits a cyclical recession that has nothing to do with Trump, which is really what this is in a sense. It's not an economic recession uh, or a cyclical economic recession. It's a recession that has been caused by a, you know, the, the cycle of pandemics, really. It's just a much longer cycle than other things that we see with 10 year, about every 10 years, you have some kind of a correction in the market. Well, it looks like about every 100 years we get hit with a really bad pandemic, uh, although we had been hit with some bad ones in the last 10 years that we should have last 20 years. We should have paid closer attention to. I think that's clear at this point. But the Democrats don't have any answers about how to make any of this stuff really better. 
thought this was interesting. Here's here's AOC, the most famous and most ignorant Democrat congressperson, I think, right now. Certainly, if you add those two together, points for ignorance and points for famousness, she is both she's both uh, shockingly ignorant and very, very prominent in left wing media. Here's what she says. Play 19. Mass unemployment in the United States was a choice. We had policy options in front of us, and we could have guaranteed payrolls in the United States of America to prevent any person from losing their job due to coronavirus. And what did elected officials do? What did Mitch McConnell do? What did Donald Trump do? They chose not to do that. So these are not things that happen by accident. Unemployment is not happening by accident. I just would want to know what her response would have been then. It seems that, and I think we'll, we'll get to if somebody does drill down on this with AOC, if she's even thought this through, is that the, the government just should have started paying people directly instead of trying to pay people through their employer. But that would have been even more complicated, wouldn't it? We, we saw them run out of money. We saw that there were log jams that happened. But also, we don't want the government to be paying people with money that is being debased in real time, being devalued in real time, because there is no productivity behind it. We're now all just running this massive experiment on does money have value? What is the value of money if there is nothing other than the full faith and credit of the United States government to back that up? Well, the full faith and credit of the United States government is worth what it is because of what all of us do day to day. It's not just value because the government says it's value. There is something behind that promise. There is the creation of products and the provision of goods and services. There's intellectual property. There, you know, there are holdings of, of real estate and factories. And, you know, there, there is an economy behind the currency. And right now we're testing out how far can we stretch the currency without with the currency without having an underlying economy to back up what we're doing with the currency. This is if you told somebody before this all happened that this was the government's plan for all that, I think they would be terrified because we are playing with fire, dancing around a whole bunch of gasoline canisters. That's what we're doing with the economy right now. It is a terrible, terrible risk we are taking. By the time, look, did any, you know, people didn't see the financial meltdown in 2008, which they told us could have, could have destroyed the global economy and all the experts and all, you know, the Fed chair, and they didn't see that. You're going to tell me that they've got this whole thing worked out right now and they, they have to listen to people like Pelosi and AOC? And Pelosi is just the worst, the worst. Blaming Trump, pretending intelligence for twenty-five. Pelosi's an imbecile. Oh, I know she's powerful and she's rich. There are a lot of dumb, powerful, rich people. A lot of them work in media, actually. In fact, I think some of the dumbest are also some of the richest and most powerful. It's true of Congress too. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, well, look at this. We've got Justin Amash, congressman who's now going to be running as a third party candidate or has 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 been toying with this idea. And now it looks like what he's launched a, a he's launched the exploratory committee. Right. The, the step right before one runs for president as a libertarian party candidate. And the Washington Post headline here tells you a lot about what they're thinking. Justin Amash could have a big impact on the 2020 presidential race. But how? Well, 
Justin Amash is a uh, on the issue of uh, civil liberties and, and surveillance and the deep state uh, has shown himself to be a fraud. He was all in on the Russia collusion hoax stuff. He couldn't see through that at all and had no problem with what was going on, had no problem with the FBI acting as a, a weapon, as an instrument of Democratic Party political control. In fact, he was a cheerleader for it. He was fine with it. Completely, utterly wrong on Russia collusion, as we see now also from not just the additional information that's come out from the Inspector General report, but also what we now know from additional disclosure in the case against General Michael Flynn, where he was set up, which I've been telling you for years. It was very obvious. You don't send in the FBI to talk to the National Security Advisor about the Logan Act unless you're desperate to concoct some scheme to come up with a criminal charge against him, which is what it, which is exactly what they did. And it was the Obama administration on the way out, lashing out at Trump and his people for beating Hillary and taking power out of the hands of the Democrats and people that ideologically and psychologically and emotionally identify with the Democratic Party, irrespective of whether they say they're nonpartisan, but who work at the FBI and the DOJ, never mind the appointees who are clearly partisans that Obama put in place. Uh, they took it upon themselves to abuse their power, to abuse the law, and to try and undo the election results of the 2016 presidential. That's what they did. And where was Amash, the civil libertarian and all that? Who knows? Uh, he was horrible on this issue. And, and I, I think that the number of people who care about this guy running is tiny. And this is where you start to hear from libertarians who, you know, I, I like some libertarians on a personal level, but after a while, the, the oh, we care so much about liberty, the, the whole libertarian thing with the third party candidates can get a little bit tiresome. It can. What, what are they really hoping to accomplish by doing this, that one day they're, they're going to win the election with somebody like this? Justin Amash, look, this is a, this is a, a ploy for attention. It's like that guy who used to be a concern, used to be a big Trump supporter and a conservative. And then he became a never Trumper and just just like desperate for attention. He's like one of these guys who ends up on, you know, Big Brother 17 or something. One of those reality shows where they have some guy who played some other guy in a sitcom in the 90s. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, wrestling people in jello on TV. Just, you know, anything to get back in the public eye. But yeah, I, I don't know. Justin Amash is running. Woo, that's going to really be exciting for some people. I, I, see, I saw some editorials today about how this is really going to matter. I think people are just desperate for political news of any kind because there's been so little of actual campaign politics to speak of because the Democrat candidate is locked away in a bunker. Uh, here I am. I'm run, running for the I'm running for the chief dog catcher of Wichita, and my name is Joe Biden. And I don't know why I talk like this, but I get confused about where I am. And you know, my leg hairs are blonde and corn pop. And I took out the the rusty razor blade, and I said, "Hold on a second. Hold on a second, man. I got this. I got these blonde leg hairs. I got to shave first. I mean, it's just so weird. The whole thing is so weird. But we don't have a lot of focus on politics so anytime there's a political story i think people that make a living doing that they they seize on it and they say oh wow look at this you know now we have an opportunity finally to talk about something that is not uh that is not about covid19 but that's where we are justin amash exploratory who cares you know i never i never liked this guy i don't know always struck me as just kind of surly and self-important not a fan not a fan never interviewed him Never wanted to. 
Uh, let's see. We have... Oh! Oh, this is good. This is good. First off, wait, wait. Before I get to that, we, we have uh, Jared Kushner, who we don't hear from very often, but who's very much involved in the most inner workings of the White House and, and wields considerable authority within this White House. Uh, here's what he said about the eternal lockdown crowd, which I think we should perhaps start referring to them that way because they are setting this up as eternal lockdown would be a better option than those of us who want to open up the country. Play clip six. And again, the goal here is to get people back to work. The uh, eternal lockdown crowd can make jokes on uh, late night television. But the reality is, is that the data is on our side. And President Trump has created a pathway to safely open up our country and make sure that we can get our economy going and get America back to a place where it will be even stronger mm -hmm. than it was before. He's right about the data being on our side. We should note that the data is on the side of those who want to reopen. Oh, the uh, the study I mentioned to you before I was going to get into the terror read allegations against Biden and the hypocrisy there. And we will in just a moment. But I did think it would be worth pointing this out to you because we often hear about the other costs out there, the other costs. And here's what we, we assume because we can understand, we can reason through this, that by preventing people from getting basic uh, medical care in hospitals by saying that surgeries are non-essential and therefore will be delayed. All kinds of screening and testing and chemo and all these things have been put on hold. I mean, I'm really worried. I'm going to tell you something. I'm, I'm concerned that I'm just going to wake up and one of my teeth is going to be rotting out of my head and I'm going to have to deal with, okay, how do I get emergency dental work done? Because I haven't been able to get a cleaning in months and I was due right when this whole thing happened. And you got to think, okay, I mean, I know that's not a big deal, but imagine that same basic idea for people that have really serious health problems, which there are a lot of folks out there who do, right? I'm just thinking about what happens if a tooth rots out of my head. You look, getting a root canal, that whole thing can be very painful. What happens with that? Well, imagine if I had a heart condition or if I had diabetes or if I had any, if I had a really, if I needed to do dialysis and these things that, you know, okay, some, you know, procedures, they're, they're continuing, I suppose, because otherwise people would die, but they've cut back so much on them are, our buddy Alex Berenson, who's out there always raising the alarms about what the data really says versus what the lockdown consensus is telling you, he, he points this out. He sent this, to, he sent this to me today, and I, I hat tip him for that. Uh, Oregonians have died at a rate well above the average since mid-March, but the tie to COVID-19 is unclear according to state data. Here's what it, here's what it says. More Oregonians have died in the past month than is typical in mid-March and early April, but fewer than half the excess deaths were officially connected to coronavirus. 245 Oregonians in all died during the five weeks between March 16th and, March, and, and April 19th than those who died the same five weeks in 2017, 2018, and 2019 on average. So you've got about a 250-person death rate increase compared to the average for the three years before. During those five weeks, 78 Oregonians, did I say Oregonians? Is it or It's Oregon, so it's Oregon. No, it must be Oregonians. I think it's Oregonians. Right, Oregon, not Oregonians. Come on. But anyway, during those five weeks, 78 or Oregon, uh, Oregonians died from COVID-19, according to the state health authority's official count. So why did, why did we have, that's less than half of the excess deaths. What caused all the, what caused the spike in other deaths? Now, we don't know this yet, but we might know relatively soon. 
What if the excess deaths, meaning a whole lot of people in, in Oregon, you know, this would be over a, over 100 excess deaths, which now you start to look at that across the country because the situation in Oregon would be no different from other places state by state around the country. You know, if you had uh, 100, uh, 100 people per state in all 50 states die of that five-week period, that's 5,000 people. It's a lot of people. Um, and remember, Oregon is not by population a very large state. Start looking at California, start looking at Texas, start looking at places where they have tens of millions of residents. The theory here, and this is this is where I think this is why Alex just flagged this story for me, Alex Berenson. But but the theory behind it clearly is, well, are these people that are dying from heart attacks or dying from uh, other medical issues that come up who just don't want to go to the hospital? They're frightened of going to the hospital, so they don't go and then they don't get emergency medical care or early interventions necessary to save their lives, i.e. the lockdown is directly causing loss of life. That has to be factored into what this whole process has been about and the, the wisdom or lack thereof of taking this approach. Starting to get this data, we should continue to look at it. All right, we, we do need to talk about this absence of principle that we're seeing. And it's the left should be made to really just just sit and stew in their lies. Just they should have to marinate in their lack of principle over Me Too allegations against Kavanaugh and against Trump, but more more specifically or more clearly, the ones against Kavanaugh were really uh, outrageous and, and, and wrong and became the focus of the country for about a month long period. So we'll talk about where is the Me Too stuff when it comes to Biden? Oh, that's right. It disappears. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Do you believe the allegation that's been put out there by Tara Reid against Biden? So when we say believe women, uh, it's for this explicit intention of making sure there's space for all women to come forward, to speak their truth, to be heard. And in this allegation, that is what Tara Reid has done. She has come forward. She has spoken. Uh, and they've done an investigation in several outlets. Um, those investigations, Vice President Biden has called for himself. Um, Vice President Biden has vehemently denied these allegations, and I support Vice President Biden. Do you think some of the Democrats who supported Blasey Ford's allegations against Kavanaugh, who've, who've been silent on this Biden allegation, do you see that as a contradiction, that they're not speaking out more and addressing Tara Reid's allegation? No, and I stand by Vice President Biden. He's devoted his life to supporting women, and he has vehemently denied this allegation. What else do you need to hear, folks? I mean, how much more clear could it be? There you have Senator from New York, Kirsten Gillibrand, who has completely abandoned what she used to say on this issue, who has decided that women do not have a right to be believed, but rather they have a right to be heard. That's an enormous change from what it was during the Kavanaugh hearing. Huge change. And isn't that so convenient that it happens to coincide with a necessary campaign of silence and or complacency in order to continue to allow the campaign, the ridiculous campaign of Joe Biden to be pushed forward by these power mad Democrats? Everything that she said there was just dishonest. It's a lie. It's disgusting. She's a fraud. 
She's a person of no ethics, no character, not willing to show any decency in the face of adversity, does whatever she has to do to get wherever she wants to go. I've also been told credibly, and I cannot repeat the story, but I, I was told credibly by somebody who was a Democrat, just what a horrible, what a horrible person Gillibrand is and what a fraud she is from a very, a very personal anecdote from someone that I trust a lot. So I, I've, I've got, I'm basically this more than just the what's out there in the public. I've just heard she's a very bad person. You know, she does the whole like, oh, I'm just a mom. And I just, oh, I'm just a mom who happens to be a senator. And I'm just, you know, I'm just helping everybody. And it's all a front. She's not a nice person. Just remember that. And she's not a principled person. That's clear. I mean, that's beyond any real doubt. Uh, the Alex, she, why did why does she believe Joe Biden? What she should have to give a re, uh, under what? Oh, and, and calling for the New York Times and other liberal newspapers to do an investigation. Where? What about the FBI investigation they called for of Kavanaugh? They wanted an FBI investigation of somebody who's going to be elevated to the Supreme Court. They don't want an FBI investigation of somebody who's going to become president and be elevated to being commander in chief, have the nuclear codes, have tremendous power. No, no FBI investigation of those allegations. Oh, you know what would happen if they call for a background investigation? This is oh, they were all so clever, weren't they? It's not a criminal investigation. It's a background investigation. Well, how can you prove yourself? You know, how, how can you prove the negative here if you're Kavanaugh? The problem with calling for a background investigation of Biden on this would be the FBI could go around. They, they already have names of people to talk to. They already have some contemporaneous corroboration. It's going to look bad for Biden. And remember, he's also a guy who sniffs women's heads, grabs them, gropes them, and it's just weird, doesn't understand boundaries. I've said this before. It, it has been written in, uh, it was written in a, in a book about Biden, and, and I was told it personally by someone in the Secret Service that it was true that Biden used to love to, uh, you know, strip completely old, gross, you know, wrinkly Biden would strip down out of his clothing naked and go swimming in front of female Secret Service detailees. Is that anybody think if that were your wife or your daughter, would you be OK with that? You know, who's, who's assigned to protect this buffoon, a total buffoon. And really, if he hadn't just been in the game forever, gotten very lucky, the guy's a loser. I know he was vice president. I don't care. Dan Quayle was vice president. All the liberals ever did was make fun of him and say how terrible he was, right? Vice president. Look, Cheney was like the dark lord. He was the Sith. He's evil. Joe, Joe Biden's a deeply unimpressive guy. And, and he also has this history of behaving poorly in, and around, in front of and around women. And Gillibrand, just, I stand with Joe Biden. Just, you can just hear just the, the power that she wants. She's just, ooh, whatever she has to say here. This was the woman who threw her Senate colleague, Al Franken, under the bus because he had the, you know, the video taken of him groping the woman, or not the video, the photo of him groping over her body armor. But, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't funny and it was creepy. But, you know, she said he's, and then someone else said that he tried to, tried to kiss her or something. And she was the one, you'll remember, who said he's got to go. And he had to step down from the Senate. He's going to go, but Bill Clinton could be president for eight years, but Al Franken had to go, and I think Al Franken's disgraceful. But it's amazing how the, the principle here shifts depending on the needs that any particular Democrat has in the moment. The allegation against Joe Biden from Tara Reid is entirely credible, and the libs don't know what to do about it because they know what they're going to do in that they're going to make this go away, and they're going to soft-pedal it, and they're going to just make sure that Joe Biden 
is a viable uh, candidate for the presidency. Whatever that means, whatever they have to pretend is true that isn't true, they'll do it. Where are all the women's organizations? Think about that. Where's the National Organization of Women? And I mean, where's Gloria Steinem? Where are all the feminists now? Oh, you mean that they're really just power mad leftists who pretend to care about women, but really just care about their own political agenda and use women as a tool, as, as a weapon against conservatives and traditionalists and Republicans? That's what they do. That's the that's why feminism in the modern context now exists. Otherwise, explain to me where the women's organizations are right now. Backing up Tara Reid, supporting Tara Reid. Oh, you mean they're all silent? They're all gone. No one's surprised by this. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. This election in November is going to determine so many things about our future. And it's going to be about our literally our health and whether we live or die. It's going to be about the state of our economy and whether we have a job and are treated with dignity or not. Where's Kamala Harris on the Joe Biden allegations? Anyone want to ask her about that? Oh, no, that's right. She's she's still trying to get a vice president nod and, uh, and get that slot from Biden. So she's not going to say anything about it other than she believes Joe Biden. So are they calling? Let's remember all the things that they did to people like me and others who were defending Kavanaugh, who was manifestly innocent. It was it was obvious. Didn't do anything. Can't even prove when you can't prove that you even knew the year that you say something happened or that you even met the person in question. You're somebody who has emotional problems and should not be listened to when a highly politicized case like this comes forward, uh, as, as it did against Kavanaugh. Against Biden, this, this all adds up. What a. A guy who's a self-important, narcissistic, power-mad senator from the 90s has a, you know, a, a young, attractive female staffer that he gets too handsy with. Does that does that sound implausible to anyone? Blasey Ford's thing about Kavanaugh, who had lived his life as a super nice guy and had never done anything except promote and assist and help women. It just, look, the story didn't add up. It just never added up. And there were no details, no contemporaneous. And the other two people came forward as we know. I mean, Julie Swetnick's a liar. She's just a liar. Crazy person and a liar. And the other woman, I think, was, you know, also a little bit deluded. Well, it was her in Deborah Ramirez. You know, but Blasey Ford was the one. Oh, and they worked so hard. She was the one who also said she couldn't fly. And then they found out that because they were trying to delay and set the pieces up to make sure that she'd have the best testimony possible against Kavanaugh. It turned out that she lied about that. That's a weird thing to lie about before you're going to testify in front of the whole country and try to ruin a man's life. All because you want some psycho lib to be on the Supreme Court to pretend that abortion is a constitutional right, which it is clearly, manifestly not. So here we are now with a much more credible set of uh, or a much more credible allegation against Joe Biden. And there's just nothing. And this is the Democratic Party that tells you that they're better. They're honorable. These are the same Democrats who have been saying that Trump lies and lies and lies is so terrible, so awful. And then this is what they offer up. I mean, there's a part of it that just wants to look at them and say, you guys are not you're not serious, right? You don't really think that this is uh, acceptable, that that Joe Biden is this this great opportunity for America. You, you can't really believe that. I mean, I refuse to think that that's something they really believe. But I guess they are going to pretend. Oh, there's another female politician 
who wants a, a shot at being Biden's vice president. Maybe Gillibrand or Gillibrand rather uh, thinks that she should be the vice president. I'm sure that that's crossed her mind. But there's uh, Stacey Abrams out there who's openly lobbying for this in a way where it's she's like telling Joe Biden. Nice, nice presidential campaign you have there. It'd be a shame if uh, some social justice came after it. You know what I'm saying? You know, you better make me VP or else. That's really been the attitude that you've been seeing. But here's Stacey Abrams when she she was asked about the Biden uh, allegations, the sexual assault allegations. And here's what she said. Play 14. Biden's campaign says untrue. Never happened. Is this a credible allegation? I believe that women deserve to be heard and I believe that they need to be listened to. But I also believe that those allegations have to be investigated by credible sources. The New York Times did a deep investigation and they found that the accusation was not credible. I believe Joe Biden. I believe that he is a person who has demonstrated that his love of family, his love of our community has been made perfectly clear through his work as a congressional leader and as an American leader. I know Joe Biden, and I think that he is telling the truth and that this did not happen. Lies, lies, and lies. The New York Times did not come to the conclusion that the allegation was not credible. They just can't tell you definitively whether or not that it happened. And even if they did say that it was not credible, that's laughable. Of course it's credible. There's nothing to disprove it, and everything about it lines up. It is entirely plausible and something that is entirely plausible when you have a named accuser, given the circumstances of what we know of their working relationship at the time, as well as Joe Biden's propensity to be handsy and gross with women in general. That's called credible. I don't remember the year. I don't remember where it was. I don't remember how I got there. Nobody will tell that this actually happened. I didn't tell anyone at the time. And I put two doors on my house because it still freaked me out decades later. Um, oh, and also I can't fly. Just kidding. Except when I go on vacation, I can fly. So I guess I will fly. That was Blasey Ford against Capitol. Was that cre- that was credible, huh? Oh, oh, we all see what's going on here. Just remember it. You were right. I was right. We were right about Kavanaugh and what happened there. And also the recognition that Me Too would be used as a political weapon against the right and abandoned the moment that it could be used against the left. We called it because we know we know who these people are. They don't have internal principle. They don't have a moral compass. It is all just whatever they need for power. Whatever they have to do, they will do. And that's what we're seeing here. Oh, yes. Women have a right to be heard. Try saying that if you're a Republican and, and, and shut down allegations of sexual assault against you. Women just have a right to be heard, not to be believed. Hmm. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Can a joke on Twitter get you dragged in front of the administrative state? Well, I wouldn't be asking the question if it wasn't obviously yes, but let's talk to the person who can tell you just what this ordeal is all about. Mr. Ben Dominich joins us now. He is the founder and publisher of The Federalist. You know, TheFederalist.com is one of our favorite sites. Mr. Ben, good to have you on, sir. It's good to be with you, Buck. Uh, How are you doing today? Oh, man, I'm I'm hanging in there, you know, in lockdown in NYC. It's not exactly... uh, a great time in the history of the city or the world for that matter, but I'm going to be all right. You're going to be all right. Our audience is going to be all right. Let's, let's tell me uh, first about 
what happened here, Ben? You, you made it. Tell folks the, the, the story because I haven't gotten into any of the details. You made a joke on Twitter that upset the libs. It had to do with unions. And now you had to go to court. What happened? So here's what happened, Buck. Uh, and I'll try to keep this uh, brief. Basically, uh, back last year uh, during the uh, during June, there was a uh, walkout happening uh, at Vox Media, something that I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with as a left of center uh, website. And they were, uh, you know, demanding all sorts of different things in the new collective bargaining agreement, including uh, some some things that I thought to be pretty pretty crazy. Um, but just as a, a matter of, of commenting about it on Twitter, I made a joke uh, that uh, amounts to uh, F, uh, FYI to the Federalist, the organization uh, I, I run. You know, the, the next one of you uh, tries to unionize, I'll send you back to the salt mines. Now, this is obviously a joke. Uh, I do not now own a salt mine. Uh, I have not ruled it out as future purchase. In fact, uh, you know, I think I think that they could be, you know, pretty productive in terms of in terms of people need salt. But it's also one of these things where, you know, the the left always wants to use any opportunity to weaponize the bureaucratic state, the administrative state uh, against people who they don't like. And in this instance, a leftist writer, Matt Brunig, who's uh, married to, uh, at that time, uh, a writer at the Washington Post, now a writer at the New York Times, uh, took umbrage with it and filed a, a labor complaint with the National Labor Relations Board, one that was also filed by another attorney in Massachusetts. Neither of these men have ever worked with us, have any relationship with us, uh, have ever been an employee or a contractor at the Federalist, but under the uh, National Labor, Labor Relations Board's perspective on things, they believe that anyone anywhere can file any kind of complaint along these lines, and they investigate it at taxpayer expense. Uh, now, what does that mean? Well, uh, I'll tell you what it means. It basically means they have the power, subpoena power and other power over you uh, that they can use to try to force you to do whatever they want you to do. In this instance, they uh, attempted to subpoena all email communications between staff on any matters, uh, going back uh, quite a bit, uh, looking not just at like, uh, you know, the, it wasn't just a request about uh, benefits or uh, negotiations or anything along those lines. It was, it was uh, a subpoena that applied to all of our reporting, all of our uh, editorial conversations and the like, a huge invasion of our First Amendment rights as a publication. My own employees, of course, thought this all was just a giant joke. They couldn't believe it was something that was actually happening. Uh, they were joking about, you know, making uh, uh, shirts or, or selling branded Federalist salt shakers or <laughs> things of that nature, which we might still do. Uh, they certainly I'd buy one. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, thank you. Uh, you'll, you'll definitely get the first model when we, uh, when we have them come in. And the, you know, thankfully at this point, I mean, I, I kind of looked around and was like, wow, this is, this is incredible. They, they can subpoena my employees to come and, and testify in New York, a state that they don't live in and that we don't have an office in. Uh, and uh, they can, uh, they can force them to come. They can make them pay the expense. Uh, they would have to hire their own lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. And thankfully in this instance, uh, I found an organization, uh, a small group of lawyers who basically just work on these types of cases, uh, the uh, New Civil Liberties Alliance, which is an excellent uh, little organization stood up by a fellow named Philip Hamburger, who will be familiar to anybody who reads about First Amendment cases and, and cases involving the bureaucratic and administrative state. Uh, and they offered to come in and really help us fight this battle against these bureaucrats. 
who really don't care that none of my employees were offended by this, that none of them saw it as a, a threat against their ability, ability to unionize. Uh, and that's something that the, the judge and the, eventually the administrative law judge uh, ruled in the past a couple weeks that, uh, that in fact, it's their opinions and even their affidavits filed saying that they were offended don't matter, that that's irrelevant. Uh, and that even in this case, you know, you can't say that this was a joke. It, it has to be interpreted as a serious threat. Uh, now, I'll tell you, Buck, the, the, the truth is I could have settled this for nothing. I mean, there's no threat to my uh, uh, threat to my livelihood. You know, they don't have uh, in a case like this for something as small as this. Uh, they would just compel my speech. They would force me to they propose deleting the tweet and then. Uh, and then posting information about my the ability of my employees to unionize, which as informed people, they're well aware of. Uh, and that was something that, of course, I could easily do to make this go away. But the reason that I decided not to is to prove a point, which is that I don't think that most people who are out there in this uh, day, day and age of social media realize uh, that if they if, if someone posted something like this, who, let's just say, owned a, a series of gas stations or owned a deli, or had a small business, and that their neighbor who doesn't like them uh, is offended by it, or their neighbor online, someone who they don't even know, you know, just some random American, uh, can file this type of, of legally uh, uh, forceful action against them in such a way that it do goes after them at taxpayer expense, and can frankly, you know, put them out of business uh, just through the expense of having to fight this type of case. And you know, the bureaucrats in this case. They, they always assume that you're just going to bend. Um, they were shocked that I didn't take the deal uh, and instead, you know, proceed to fight. And here's the thing, you know, this will go and work its way through the administrative law process, but then we'll get to the real courts where the Constitution actually matters. And I think we'll, then we'll have a conversation about whether this is something that Congress intended under their uh, creation of the NLRB, whether it's something that ought to continue in terms of, of uh, the ability of people who have no connection to any organization uh, to file wherever they want. Uh, and and to compel uh, speech on the part of of those whose opinions they just happen to not like. We're speaking uh, to Ben Dominich, founder of the Federalist. Uh, you can go to thefederalist.com. It's one of my favorite sites. His uh, piece in the Wall Street Journal is how my joke on Twitter became a federal case. He's telling us about it now. Now, Ben, you're saying that you wanted you you're fighting this on principle, which I can totally appreciate and understand. And you're going to take this into real court. Got to ask you though, do you have any concerns that? Somehow, you know, we, we just saw, in my opinion, a horrible decision from the Supreme Court on New York City gun law, uh, which, you know, it's a conversation we could have another time. But to me, it's just inexcusable what John Roberts did. And it clearly wouldn't stand for, say, abortion rights or something else, something like that. But uh, you seem pretty confident going into court that you'll be OK on this. Any concern that you might get the wrong judge? Oh, I think that that's absolutely a possibility. I mean, you could you could end up on the wrong side of this and, and certainly have to, you know, uh, see the ramifications of that. But in my from my perspective, that's worth the risk in this scenario where the deck is so stacked in the favor of the bureaucrats currently that I'd like to see this question resolved. Um, and while these courts you know, behave in their own little area of law where uh, 
the administrative law judge one day is the person making the argument for the bureaucracy on the other day. Uh, and that's a, a whole world in which the rules effectively don't apply the way that they apply within the traditional court system as we understand it. I think that that's a bad thing. Uh, and I think that it's something that ought to be curtailed. And I don't believe that this, I don't think that the people who brought this uh, case really thought it through in terms of the fact pattern of such a clear misuse of a, a you know kind of troll on a trollish capacity of the type of bureaucracy that's supposed to look out for workers as opposed to uh, engaging in something that could you know frankly lead to the you know the organization if they if we they didn't have the resources that we do and the connections that we do uh, you know being bankrupted or, or you know putting those workers out of the street without their jobs uh, and you know what uh, Buck I, I think that this is also an indication of something looking toward looking forward to the future the ability that we have in this day and age to uh, have people drill down and attack small businesses as we've seen it within primarily the religious freedom aspects of things across the country uh, via these uh, these courts that are essentially you know carved out and, and unresponsive to uh, citizens and individuals I think that's a, a real danger and it's something that we need to start looking at in terms of, of curtailing it for the future uh, where we're going to have you know a nation of Karens who are going out there and uh, and using the power of these agencies to enlist taxpayer funds and uh, and put bureaucrats after people they just happen to not like. Just one quick one for you, Ben, before we let you go back to fighting fighting the man or the NLRB man. Did anybody from this administrative agency, when you're sitting there, and I suppose you have legal representation, but you're like, when you say it's a joke, which it clearly is, right? Like I've joked around before and said, you know, when, when I used to work at the CIA, I'd be like, all right, like, I'm going to I'm going to send somebody I'm going to send this person to Gitmo or something. Right. Like you just get yes. angry and, you know, I don't have that authority. I can't do that. It's not going to happen. You know, you don't, as you pointed out, own a salt mine. You can't send anyone there. And it's clearly a joke. When you say that, though, what is their response? Well, what I'd say is there are two things. One is a legal matter. They say, well, that doesn't matter because someone will someone could reasonably take it literally. Um, which is to me just a, a complete misunderstanding of that standard uh, historically and the way the courts have, have used it in the past. In other words, it eliminates any context uh, for the fact, you know, maybe he does own a salt mine or something along those lines. But the other thing is, and, it's, and this is something I think we need to understand about the folks who are involved in this. These are bureaucrats who take everything literally. They are humorless. They have no concept that this is a joke. And it, it makes me, it makes me really wonder, you know, how familiar they are with just, what Twitter is. <laughs> you know, Twitter is just a place for, for snark and humor and all types of com comments within this area. And, you know, to your point, I mean, imagine if someone were to come after you for saying, you know, here's this ex-government employee saying he wants to send me to Gitmo. I'm scared. You know, I mean, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, I think that's very much. I mean, you know, I was yeah. saying I was saying it to my little sister's boyfriends for years. I hope I can't, <laughs> can't get sued for it. You know, it's crazy. Well, but, so. You know, look, here's what I'll here's what I'll say. This is I think this is a fight worth having because it's so clear cut and because we have the resources and the friendships in order to make this fight where other people couldn't. And I hope that ultimately this leads to, you know, some some real questions that people ask about the appropriateness of, of empowering bureaucrats with this type of unrestricted ability to invade the lives of people across the country based just on the, the, the fact that they have differences in politics. I think that's very dangerous. Ben Dominich, everybody, founder of The Federalist. Ben, stay in the fight, man. Let us know how it goes. 
Thank you, Buck. I will. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, before we get to roll call, a story here out of New York that's gotten a lot of attention is trending on Twitter and on social media. De Blasio breaks up rabbi's funeral and lashes out over virus distancing after overseeing the dispersal of hundreds of Hasidic mourners in Brooklyn. Mayor Bill de Blasio called the gathering absolutely unacceptable. And he, he warned, quote, the Jewish community in all communities that any violation of social distancing guidelines uh, can lead to a summons or arrest. Quote, something absolutely unacceptable happened in Williamsburg tonight. A large funeral gathering in the middle of this pandemic. This is from the, this is Mayor de Blasio. When I heard, I went there myself to ensure the crowd was dispersed. And what I saw will not be tolerated so long as we are fighting the coronavirus. End quote. Producer Mark, I would like you to, to, to weigh in on this. As a, as a fellow American and as a fellow New Yorker and as a Jewish New Yorker, what say you, producer? Well, a New Jerseyan, but it's New York. Yes. Come on. I grew up in New York. Right. You're from New York. What say you about this, uh, this situation? And why is it trending on social media? Well, I think because de Blasio tweeted something basically targeting, naming Jews. So that's why everyone's mad at him right now. And I mean, first of all, I want to point out that de Blasio does one thing great, uniting everyone in hating him. And I hate him too. I think what he was trying to say is the Hasidic Jews, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, they don't listen to anybody. So why would you tweet that? They don't, they're not on Twitter. They don't use social media. They that's don't use technology. I, so I he's even dumber than we think. I don't think you're going to reach the Hasidic community well on Twitter. I think that's probably true. I know enough to know that that's the case. Yeah, so if you're trying to reach out to them, doing it on Twitter is a bad job, and basically you just angered all, the Jew- all Jewish people by tweeting that because he targeted just Jewish people, as if there weren't Christians meeting on Easter uh, in New York, as if uh, Muslims don't unite, aren't doing it. Di- every religion is doing this right now, to kind of push back on the social distancing stuff. So why are you targeting just the Jewish people? All right. There you have it. Producer Mark weighing in. Let's get to a roll call. Oh, remember, folks, BuckSexton.com, a fantastic website. And if you have not already, YouTube.com slash BuckSexton. We have a YouTube channel. So if you have not yet seen some of our long-form interviews that we've done, uh, we have a great one with uh, James Altucher. We had... Uh, the Motor City Madman on recently, uh, Ted Nugent. We've had, uh, who else have we done long? Jack Carr. We've done these long form interviews. You got to check them out. So please subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's youtube.com slash Buck Sexton and also bucksexton.com. Put that on your bookmarks. If enough of you start bookmarking it, I will just start writing, if not biweekly, weekly for the website. That's right, baby. We're going to start using BuckSexton.com for exclusive written content. And I've even talked to the Snow Princess about doing some cooking videos with me because she's a fantastic cook. I'm like decent. Like producer Mark would eat my food and be like, I cannot complain about this because it's good. Her food, the two of us would sit there and be like, this is amazing. So, yeah, I would just ask you why you haven't married her yet. Yeah, working make on those it. Jokes. Make those jokes. I'm working on it. I know. I'm working on it. She made she made a cacio e pepe last night. You like Italian, right? Yeah. What in the world is that? You don't know cacio e pepe? No. It's like uh, spaghetti in like a in the pecorino romano cheese sauce with pepper. Yeah, you, oh, you, I'm you, sold. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 like fancy. She's explaining to me it's fancy. 
Italian macaroni, basically. Like it's a fancy Italian macaroni and cheese, but it's with uh, with um, spaghetti instead of, you know, whatever you call the mac and macaroni. But uh, yeah, it's really, really good. So, yeah, no, um, we'll, we'll make it happen. You and, and Mrs. Producer Mark will have you guys. Oh, when when we're not under threat of de Blasio arresting us for socializing, then uh, we can we can make you guys. Am think. I under extra threat now? I don't I don't understand. Oh, you mean uh, uh, that's <laughs> de Blasio's. Uh, he's going after certain people a little more than others, it seems. I don't know. I, I leave that to the mayor's office. He's not doing himself any favors. You're right, by the way, as a, as a personality contest thing or as, as a popularity contest, rather. De Blasio, it's, it's remarkable that this guy is the mayor of New York City. I will tell you this. I know crazy libs of all kinds. I know them from work. I know them personally. I have never heard a person make a case for Bill de Blasio being anything other than terrible. Never. I've never met a human being who's like, I think Bill de Blasio does a really good job. And, and that's not, I know, I know libs who love Pelosi, you know, yes, queen. They think she's amazing. I know libs who, you know, name, name your, they love uh, Adam Schiff. They, you know, name your, your odious Democrat. And I can think of people that think that they're wonderful, wonderful. And I know them. I've never, and just, a, it's an anecdote I know, but I mean, do you know anybody? No, I've never met one human being who likes Bill de Blasio. And yet he's the mayor. And he wanted to run for president. How is it even possible? And he, and he ran for president. He, ran he really president. legitimately thought he was going to win the presidency. Oh, my gosh. It's just stunning. All right. Anyway. All right. Roll call. Remember, BuckSexton.com and also YouTube.com slash BuckSexton. Want to get as much digital Team Buck action uh, going as we possibly can. Just more ways for us all to keep in touch, more content, and more ways to keep you safe and warm at night. And with that in mind, Mark writes in, Hey, Buck, producer Mark, you and Tallulah keep me safe and warm at night. Thank you so much. I live in the foothills of Colorado. My wife and I own a small one-chair hair salon. Our governor laid out a reopening plan set to start today, April 27th. My wife started booking clients, and we were very optimistic about getting back to normal. Then on Friday, Denver County announced the stay-at-home order was to remain in effect till May 8th. Then our county quickly followed suit on Friday. As a former sheriff's deputy, I constantly question the constitutionality of all this. How can a county health official tell us our legal small business is now illegal to operate without any subsidy and without suspending rent and mortgages? Keep up the good work, boys. You're the highlight and sanity of my daily routine. Well, Mark, that's really high praise, and we appreciate that. It's very kind of you, and that's why we, we keep doing what we do here every day. So thank you so much for that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. As for the constitutionality of this and the 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 capricious nature of the of the state uh authorities that are pushing these shutdowns look i i can't tell you that this is anything other than what it is which is bad and it's overreach and it's a problem so uh but thank you for listening out in the uh, foothills of colorado we appreciate it andrew oh uh, one more note guys when you write in if you listen on one of our affiliate stations if you don't mind uh please do write in you know if you listen on, you know, Whoa, Whoa in Fort Wayne, Indiana or KLBJ in Austin or Freedom 93.7 in Denver or uh, or our, our, our wonderful new affiliate in uh, San Diego or our affiliate up in you, know, you, you name it. I mean, where, wherever we are and you're listening, um, please, please do, uh, you know, WCBM Baltimore. Got to give Baltimore a shout out. We do. By the way, I want to say thank you to all the people who listen on WCBM Baltimore because we've been fantastic uh, with the numbers there a lot of you are still listening a lot of you are tuning in and it means a lot that's a top 50 market for us 
And I, I just we, we Mark and I extend you our thanks for making sure that we are resonating with the with the great people of Baltimore and the surrounding area. So, yeah, please do let us know what station you listen on. If you listen on a station, uh, that's a helpful thing for us. Andrew Buck, greetings from Minnesota. Yesterday in roll call, you questioned the idea of people voluntarily not working, affecting more than the restaurant industry. Did I? I can tell you that my I don't remember doing that. I can tell you that my immediate neighbors are two contractors and a husband wife daughter team who run an eye care clinic. The contractors have projects scheduled and our work restrictions are now lifted, but their workers make more by claiming unemployment. The eye care people have complained of their employees getting coached by liberal employees on how to make the most of the benefit system, and it's hanging the clinic out to dry. One of their employees told them to take Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf's advice and just pay your employees more if management wants them to come back to work. When Minnesotans are being that rude to each other, you know things are getting weird out there. Yeah, Andrew, thank you for the heads up on this. I, I, that makes sense to me that there would be other businesses, too, because the Paycheck Protection Program is not just for restaurants. So there must be other businesses where the financial incentive is now stronger to stay home than it is to work. And that's clearly counterproductive for those of us who want to get the economy up and running again. Uh, so thank you for bringing me that, the, you know, that sense of what's going on in Minnesota. It is true. Minnesotans are so nice. They're such nice people. Minnesotans are so nice. They're a bunch of I wonder what have they ever done a study of what the how would you even gauge this? But I'm curious what the nicest state is like if I ask you, producer Mark, what state is the when I say the nicest, the friendliest, like strangers are the friendliest to you in what state? What would you say? It's definitely not New York or New Jersey. We know. that. Uh, I mean, I will say about New Yorkers, they are kind to each other sometimes. Like when no, something's come, wrong, we come see, together. I was going to say we come through for each other when it counts. Right. Like New Yorkers, we'll, we do our thing, we do our thing, but you know we'll, we'll see something wrong going down or we'll see somebody who's in need and New Yorkers will go to the mat for each other when it counts. But we're not like, oh, hey, how's your day? Oh, my day's fine. You know, that's, that's not our way. So what, where do you find, and by the way, I think that's an astute observation you have and I totally agree with you about that, that we, you know, New Yorkers will surprise people by what they're willing. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen stuff go on in this city and I'm just like, that's that's how we that's how we do it here. Like when someone is in an accident or something. Now, you could say this is true everywhere, but New Yorkers really go to extreme lengths. I can't tell you how many people I've seen help mothers carry very heavy strollers down narrow, slippery subway stairs, which sounds like it's not a big deal. But let me tell you something as somebody who has humble brag carried uh carried a, a a few strollers for strangers with the kid in the stroller because there's a baby so you got someone else's baby that you're kind of now responsible for the safety of you're trying not to fall down the stairs and crack your skull open and you're hoping you don't throw your back out you know what i mean yeah i've seen that happen uh, as well i don't really help because i would fall with the stroller so that caused two problems but there is a website called big seven travel and it says Minnesota is the friendliest state, followed by Tennessee. I was going to say people would usually think it's Minnesota. Would you Ever like to know where New York is? Everyone's real friendly. Where is New York? 50th. <sighs> Oof. Oof. Yeah, people were very, when I was in Nashville, people were very nice in Tennessee. It is true. People are friendlier in the South. I mean, when I go down, when I go down to the Carolinas or, or to Georgia, everyone's so nice. Texas, people are like, hey, how you doing? I'm like. You actually care, don't you? You're like, hey, I, I hope this stranger's care. having a good day. 
I, I think why New York gets a bad rap. If you see a tourist, and I'm sure you're guilty of it as, as I am, if they stop in the middle of a sidewalk and to take a picture or something stupid, you shove them a little. We have rules here. Yeah. And you got to know the rule. The rules are you walk fast or you get out of the way. Yeah. You don't take too much time when you're ordering food because you look at the menu before you get to the front of the line. You know, we have rules. That's the thing. You know, we're, we're on a, we're, New Yorkers are all on a time crunch, so it seems like we're rude when really we're just trying to move fast, which sometimes makes us rude. Yeah, and when tourists get in our way, we don't like it. I also feel like there's a, there's a, there's a sort of understood language. Like sometimes if someone accelerates toward you in New York and you're in the crosswalk, this is when life was normal and there were cars driving around, you know, you flip, you know, you flip them the bird and they honk at you and it's like, eh, and you're not even really mad at them. But that's just the way we communicate here. Oh, I used to get into the right by our old building before we moved downtown. There was like a stop sign in the middle of the street for, for uh, pedestrians to go by. So many taxis wouldn't stop and almost hit me. I swear I almost came to blows with a couple taxi drivers. So that does yeah, but, but this is this is like, you, you know, you throw them the one finger salute. They honk at you. You go about your merry day. And, you know, you kind of get a little stress out. I don't know. It's just, yeah. the, it's just the way it is here. It's kind of a... It's called a New York hello. Yeah, that's how we do it. It's different in other places. In Minnesota, you know what they call a hello? A hello. Because <laughs> they, they hug you. That's right. Not anymore, but they used to hug you. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right, more, more roll call here. Willis writes in, good call on the Waco series. Just started it last night. Keep the suggestions coming. All right, man, Willis, first of all, I'm glad you enjoy the Waco series. I think it's excellent. My suggestions for you right now for things to watch that are out there, watch the Michael, and this one's from producer Mark, The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary on ESPN, fantastic. The Last Kingdom season four, if you have seen the other seasons, you need to watch this one. Um, if you haven't seen The Last Kingdom on Netflix, highly recommend it. It's like Vikings, but I think even a little better than the show Vikings. Uh, so The Last Kingdom, Waco, as I've mentioned to you, is just, it's gripping. It's so well done, and it's an excellent, uh, producer Mark gave us The Last Dance. Do you have another break for producer Mark, other than the creek that we, the, the creek that shall not be named, because we can't say it on air? Yes, yeah, so I'll say Silicon Valley. I'm only three seasons in, but I love it so far. Very good show. I, I knew that would one would be right up your alley. I mean, I, I think Silicon Valley is excellent. So you got a bunch of wrecks there. Oh, and if you want something to watch with the misses, The Crown is a is a show that that the dudes and the ladies can watch together and I think equally enjoy. It's a very good show for what it is. A little a little understated, a little bit. It can be a little slow, but it's the acting and the writing is excellent. The costuming and sets are cinematic quality uh, you'll, you'll see what i mean and uh, you watch it with the wife she'll be like oh look at he's kind of a sensitive sophisticated he's a sophisticated fellow isn't he he likes to likes to watch the crowd and drink tea eat crumpets all right john buck i'm a political science major just finished a class called research and writing in poli sci we learned a lot about polling and how to account for influences in a sample group that got me thinking about the odds of liberal covid patients who are prescribed hydroxychloroquine and not taking it since the drug has been politicized. However, I doubt that if that were happening, it would be a high enough number of patients to impact the results. What do you think? Uh, John, I, I don't think that anybody who is advised by their doctor when, when their life is really on the line to take a drug like hydroxychloroquine would say no because of the politics. But then again, people are nuts. So I, I, I can't, I don't have a good read on this. I'm not seeing the matrix on this one. I don't have a good read on this one. Uh, as for, 
hydroxychloroquine so far, the, the belief has really switched now based on what doctors have seen. This is not a belief that comes out of nowhere that it might be best as a either early intervention to prevent the virus from replicating or as a just a straight up prophylactic against virus against the virus establishing an infection. William, greeting, greetings, Buck and Mark. It seems clear that the only metrics the Democrats, the media, that the only metrics uh, when it comes to opening the country is after the election or at least to wait until they think they have sunken Trump's chances or sunk Trump's chances. They want the economic recovery to come under their guidance so they can claim credit for saving the country. Open the country! Shields high. Uh, yeah. So you're correct about a lot, of a lot of politics at play here and the slow nature of reopening the country that has to do with those politics for the left. So we'll have to see how this continues. This fight is, is ongoing. And we will need our, our shield tie because this is not this is going to get ugly. It's going to get very ugly. I'm already seeing some guy got arrested in North Carolina. This just broke today because he opened his tattoo parlor. Get ready for more of that. More noncompliance. It's going to happen. Mark writes a lot of Mark's writing in. Producer Mark, were you bored last night? Buck, producer Mark, Trader Joe sells crumpets. Same section as English muffins. OK, good to know. But are they gluten free? That's going to be the show for today, everybody. Back tomorrow. Same time and place. Shields high.